All right, Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Perry Sound. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus. We're going to be in Titus this morning, a little tiny book, hard to find. You might have to use your table of contents for this one. It's after First and Second Timothy, a little book of Titus. If you'd uh, grab your Bibles and go there. If you don't have a Bible, if you'd throw your hand up, we'd love to get a Bible into your hands so that you could follow along with us. So if you, if you didn't bring your Bible, throw your hand up, grab one of these. If you don't own a Bible, for sure throw your hand up. Take one of these home as our gift to you. Grab a copy of God's Word. Turn to the book of Titus. As you're turning there, I just... What would happen if, if I were to say to you this morning that, that maybe I would have run in here late, the worship already happened, the announcements happened, and I, I kind of stroll in here late, and I get up here and I go, sorry I'm late, but, but you wouldn't believe it. Out in the parking lot, one of those big, big parking lot light things, they, they caught on fire and fell down and crushed me right in the ground on fire. What would you think if I said that's why I was late? Like, yep, you're a liar. There's no way that happened to you, right? Why is that? Because you'd be like, hey, hey, there's no way that happened to you because your clothes aren't burnt. You have no injuries. If, if a huge light caught on fire and landed on you, it would be kind of obvious that it happened. You'd walk a little differently as you came in. You'd be talking a little differently as you came in. And, and listen, I think the same way for us as Christians, we can talk about meeting Jesus. We can talk about the grace of God changing our lives. And scripture points out, scripture would say, if, if you've met grace, if Jesus Christ has, has come into your life, the good news of Jesus Christ has hit you, it will change you. You, you will love differently. You will forgive differently. You will, you will give differently. Like people should be able to look in on your life and say, man, something's happened to you. There's a change in your life that's different. You live a different kind of life. It, it's like something's happened to you. We're breaking into this new sermon series this morning. We're going to go through this, this book of Titus. And the sermon series is called The Good Life. And we're digging into this letter written by the Apostle Paul to this, this church planter named Titus. And all through the, through the letter, what we're going to see is Paul saying, hey, listen, if you've experienced the gospel, if you've experienced the grace of God through Jesus Christ, your life will totally change. The way you do church will change. The, the way you do community will change. The, the, the way you interact with people around you will change. The, the way you live your life out in our community, in our culture, in your workplace will change. Why? Because when you are hit by grace, everything changes. Let me give you a little background here to this letter before we, before we get into it. It was, it was written by a guy named Paul. We see that right away from the very first verse. He says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, that the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our Savior. That's who's writing it. Paul, who's he writing to? Verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. 
So here's, here's Paul writing this letter to Titus. Now, normally when Paul would write letters, he would write them to churches. Right? We have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We have these churches that Paul would write to. But what was happening is the churches were growing so rapidly. The gospel was spreading so far and so fast that, that he also wrote some letters just to some pastors who were overseeing a number of churches. We call them the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters. So he wrote, he wrote a couple letters to Timothy and he wrote this letter to Titus. Now, we don't know a lot about Titus, but by the way Paul describes him in verse 4, it sounds like he was somebody who came to understand who Christ was through Paul. That Paul probably discipled him, mentored him. We read about Titus in, in Galatians. In Galatians, what was going on there, you see there was this thing called the Jerusalem Council, and, and the church had just gotten started and was, was growing, and, and it had moved from being this, this little Jewish religion, and now the way God had intended it, it was going out to the nations, to everybody, and, and, and the Christianity's spreading, and as it's spreading, those who, who came out of Judaism are thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, what about all our ceremonial laws? Shouldn't people have to follow those? Did Jesus, did, did Jesus coming and dying and raising from the dead, what does it do with all that stuff? So they get together as all these leaders of the early church and they're like, what do we do with the old ceremonial laws? And one of the ones that are really hung up on is, what do we do about circumcision? Do those who are Gentiles, do we make them be circumcised? So Paul brings this guy Titus. He's a Greek uncircumcised Christian. He says, hey, why don't you come to this meeting where we decide whether or not circumcision is going to happen? They decided it didn't have to. And Titus like, thank you. That's a good news, right? But they come in and Paul's like, no, Jesus has taken care of that. All of those ceremonial laws are pointing to Christ and they've been fulfilled. And so Titus, though, goes on that as one of his trips with Paul. He was also sent by Paul to the church in Corinth. We read in 2 Corinthians that he was given a mission. Paul had written a letter. We don't actually have this letter any longer, but it was called the severe letter where the church in Corinth was so jacked up, was so messed up, that Paul wrote this letter of rebuke. And he gave it to Titus. Titus, you take it to the church. Now here's the thing. Titus couldn't just show up and drop the letter in a post office box and take off, right? No, he was going from church to church with this letter, reading it to them probably, and then taking questions and, and hey, what did Paul mean when he said this? And can you help us walk through how we're supposed to live this out? Titus also went to Corinth a little later and, and Paul sent him on another mission to the Corinthian churches to ask them for money to support suffering Christians in Jerusalem. It seems like whenever there was a tough task, Titus was the guy who said, I'll do that. I'll do that. Hey, we got another big mission. It's gonna be, I'll take that. I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll go there. And it just seemed that he was, he was uniquely gifted, probably as a, a caring pastor, but also not afraid of tough situations that he could step into. In fact, where do we see Titus now? In, in this letter, he's planting churches on the island of Crete. And here's the thing about Crete. Once again, Titus said, tough mission, I'll take it. Like, I'm imagining Paul saying, hey, hey, I need someone who can be a church planter, but you're going go to you're gonna go to Crete, and I can imagine church planters kind of head down, shuffling their feet, kind of pretending they got to take a phone call. But Titus is like, I'll go. I'll go to Crete. Here's the thing about Crete. Why is this a tough mission? Crete was one of the most immoral places in the ancient world. It was sort of like Las Vegas meets Mardi Gras all the time, all right? I know we're all good Christians. We have no idea what I'm talking about. It's bad, all right? It's just, it's tough. Okay, it's a bad place. 
It was also an island and it was a, a hub for all the piracy that was going on in the Mediterranean. So, so criminals, are, are, that's where they would stop on their way to, to, go, to go do more crime. And in fact, historians say that the Cretans stayed drunk 24-7. They were just always drunk. Lying was celebrated on the island of Crete. It, it, the better you were as a liar, the, the, the more people thought you were just the greatest person ever. In fact, the term Crete became synonymous with lie. Like, hey, are you creating to me right now? You're such a Cretan. What would that mean? It means you're, you're a liar. In fact, the historian Polybius said that there was nowhere in the ancient world where politicians were more corrupt, where they would take finances to support the the people already in power. There's no place in the ancient world more than Crete as far as corruption was concerned. The people of Crete believed that Zeus was actually born on the island, and so they lifted Zeus up as their ultimate example. And if you know anything about Zeus, Zeus was known for being a womanizer, and so like, this is our guy. We want to live like him. And so across the island of Crete, it was full of immorality and abuse. In fact, look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Here's what Paul says about the island of Crete. Verse 12 says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. You're like, whoa, Paul, that's a little harsh saying this is true. And I, I imagine Paul like, I didn't say it. One of their own said it. I think they're on to something. Have you been to Crete? Like that's kind of where Paul's at, right? And so here's Titus in this hugely difficult culture, a church that, that, that in that culture is starting to become messed up. Why? Because the churches on the island of Crete were starting to look more like Cretans than they were like Christians. They weren't standing out as different. And, and at the same time going on, false teachers had come in and they were preaching a false gospel. Listen, not everybody who opens up their Bible and preaches is preaching a, a true gospel. We, we need to be sure, hey, I want to check out what you're saying. I want to read scripture and make sure that what you're saying is the pure gospel. And just like today, back there, people preached a false gospel. Twisted scripture. And so Paul writes this letter to Titus. And he's saying, listen, I want you to encourage the churches there, Titus. Encourage them that the gospel changes how we live. They were called to, to live out a, a different way. We're called to live out this good life in a culture that, that calls the good life something else. So this morning, I just want to unpack a couple verses for us this morning to, to set up the rest of this series. We're going to be in this little book of Titus and, and to also show us, hey, what's it look like to live out the gospel in Muskoka, in Perry Sound, and to the ends of the earth? I mean, God's whole purpose in the, in the gospel is that he says, I want to create for me God-loving and God-like people. That's why Paul says in verse 1 that the, the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, meaning that, that truth that you believe, it changes you to live out in a life of godliness. That's the point of the gospel. That when God saves someone, he doesn't just save you from something, he saves you to something. And I think of Moses when he went to, to Pharaoh and God said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. I want to rescue them out of slavery, out of bondage. But, but God didn't just say, let my people go. He said, let my people go that they could worship me. So, so he wasn't just calling them out of something. He's also calling them to something, to a new life. 
I think as Christians, we can talk a lot about what we're saved from. Here's all, the, here's all the sinful stuff that I've saved from. Here's the things I don't do anymore because I'm a Christian. I've been saved from sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But, but, but what did God save us to is the point of the gospel as well. We're not just saved from something. We're saved to something. And Paul's laying out here for Titus and for us and for the church in Crete. He's saying, listen, listen, you were saved not just for a bunch of religious things to do. You've been changed. Your whole heart has changed. So here's a question I want us to start with this morning. How then does this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, how does it change my life? How does it create this good life? If you're taking notes, here, here's our first point this morning. The, the gospel can transform those who are completely lost. The gospel can transform those who are completely lost. The gospel can bring the good life to those who are so far gone. You think, man, there's no way they could ever find Jesus. There's no way they could ever be living this good life Paul's talking about, except, except I love how this letter begins. The first word in this letter is Paul. I mean, there's a myth, I think, in the modern church that says for you to belong to Jesus, for you to follow Jesus, you have to have a clean past behind you. The, the biblical truth is this, that there is no man, no woman, no child whose past is so far gone that it's outside of the reach of the grace of God to overcome it and to transform you. Paul, 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 a guy who, if he'd come into this church gathering before he met Jesus, he would be dragging some of us out to beat us, to throw us in prison, to have us killed for following Jesus. That was Paul. It was Paul in Acts chapter seven who stood and held everybody's coats who were throwing stones at Stephen, the very first Christian martyr as they stoned him to death and Paul cheered them on. It was Paul in Acts chapter eight where it says that he breathed out threats and he ravaged the church house to house. But then in Acts chapter nine, Paul comes face to face with the risen savior, with Jesus, and his whole life is transformed. Now, now we don't get to read about what, what went on from that point where he finds Christ and then, and then when he's, he's, he, we see him starting to serve. What went on in that gap? I wonder what it was like for Paul the first time he came to a church service after his life was changed by the gospel. How do you, how do you think that would have went? Imagine Paul comes in, he sits down beside you and you're like, that's Paul. He, he may have had, had one of your relatives thrown into jail. He, he may have beaten you personally, and he's now coming into church. How, what, what would that be like? And I started thinking about what it would have been like for Paul. Do you think when he first started coming to church, as he's, as he's growing in the gospel, I wonder what it, would, wonder what it would have been like for him. Maybe he sat there thinking, man, if these people only knew a fraction of what I've done, there's no way they'd want me here. How come they keep calling me brother? What if he, what if he wondered if he belonged there? See, because I have no doubt in a room this size that there are some who would think the same thing here this morning. And you'd be thinking, man, if, if you only knew who I was, if you only knew about the abortion. If, if you only knew about the DUI charges, if you only knew about the 
crimes in my background, if you only knew how messed up I am even right now, if you only knew the level of struggle that I'm walking in right now, if you only knew what I did last night, if you only really knew who I was, man, I don't belong here. Listen, listen closely. That's a lie from the devil. I mean, some of you might be here this morning and you're looking around and and you're thinking to yourself, you look around, man, my life's a wreck and these people have their lives all together. Let me tell you something. I'm I'm a pastor here. I hang out with most of these people. No, they do not, all right? Neither do I. Every single one of us here is a work in progress. It's why you see hypocrisy in the church. It's why my wife would see hypocrisy in my life when I, when I go home after preaching on a Sunday. Why? Because our claim is not that we're perfect. Our, our, our claim, our trust, our hope is not in our perfection. It's this, that there was someone who was perfect, that Jesus Christ, the perfect one, God the Son, came and stood in your place and in my place in his perfection, and he was rejected so we could be accepted. So that right now, our past, no no matter how broken your past is, the gospel's for you. And listen, listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a, a Christ follower and you're struggling with that idea, you've been bought with a price. You've been redeemed, you've been saved. If, if you've put your life in Christ and yet things are still hard for you, Satan so desperately wants to convince you that man, this is not the place you should be. Satan so much wants to convince you, hey, don't show up at church. Hide out, stay away. Don't let people see you're struggling. Don't let people see that it's difficult for you to live out the good life in Christ. Listen, listen again. The hope we have is not that we're perfect. Here's what I'd say. If you truly get the gospel, and if if someone were to actually say to you in church and point out imperfection, say, man, here's the sin I see in your life. Here's what the gospel says, where you can say, really, really, you don't know the half of it. I'm far more broken, far more messed up, far darker in my heart than you'll ever even be able to point out to me. But my hope is not in a perfect past. My hope is not in a perfect present. My hope is this, that Jesus Christ has forgiven me completely. And this hope, look what Paul says in verse two of chapter one, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies Isn't that great he puts that there? He's writing to a bunch of people who always lie. And he said, to a God who never lies. He promised before the ages began. There's a staggering truth about your past in that statement, that the promise of new life that God has for you, that that he chose you before the foundations of the world, that that he chose to, to pour his grace out on you, to woo you, to love you, to draw you to himself before the ages began. Listen, before your past even started. I mean, this promise of new life. Is there so we can stop living in the shame of our past? And, and as you look behind you, as you look back at the gospel that was, that was promised before the foundations of the world, as you look back and see that Christ died for that, for you, as you look back, it changes the way you see your past. You now look at your past through gospel lenses. 
And it brings about something so much different than shame. It brings about something so much better than striving. It brings about something so much greater than just religion or, or hiding. It, it, it brings on a worship of the one who gave his life for you to be made whole. And a celebration of the gospel. In fact, our second point this morning is this, that the gospel produces new life. When, when you see behind you, when you see the promise of the gospel in your life, it produces new life. Now, how does it do it? Look at verse uh, 11 of chapter two. Paul says this, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the good life. If I were to ask you, what produces this good life of, of renouncing ungodliness, of living self-controlled, of having more peace, more rest, more hope, well, how do we get that? What would our answer be? I think a lot of time in church, we'd say, well, if, if you just had greater willpower, if, if you had greater knowledge, well, maybe if you, had, if you had better accountability partners, maybe if you had a deeper time in the word, maybe, maybe, maybe if you understood judgment more and you had a, 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 a clearer view of hell, that, that might change how you live. And listen, none of those things are bad. All those things aren't, aren't, aren't bad on themselves, but, but look what Paul says. Here's his answer for how do you produce this good life? Look again at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us. What is it that trains us? Wait a minute, it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that teaches us. It's the grace of God that trains us so, so that as we grow in this good life of following after Christ, that it's the grace of God that means that next week I'm gonna be different than I was this week, that, that a month from now I'm gonna be growing and training. And How's that happen? I think there are four ways we can see this happening. Here's the first way. Look at verse two. Paul says that, that we have this hope of eternal life. Chapter two, verse 13, he says this. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the first way I believe that this, this good life grows in us. We look up. We need to look up. We need, to, we need to see the hope. And what's the hope? The hope is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and what happens when we look up, we redirect our worship. Because we understand that, that our sin problem is always a worship problem. It's, it's our hearts running to the wrong things. In Romans 1, verse 23, it says that, that we, we gave the, the glory of God that we're supposed to give to God. That glory that we're supposed to give to God, we gave it to other things, to created things. Glory in Hebrew, it means, it means weight or, or importance. In, in Greek, in the New Testament, glory means beauty. So you, you think about what that means then. We give the importance and the weight and the, the things we think are beautiful. Paul's saying, we're giving it to the wrong things. Our, our worship is going to the wrong things. We're, we're giving these things weight and, and beauty and we're importance in our life. 
And when we do that, our hearts are disordered and we experience this, this weight of sin on our lives. We, we experience anxiety, we experience hurt, we experience jealousy, we, we experience worry and bitterness and pride. It all grows, why? Because our, our hearts, what we're worshiping, what we've placed our importance on are things other than God. And we may not say it, but our lives show it. I, I can't be happy unless I have. I can only be happy if, if finances are great, if, 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 I, if, I, if my sex life is, is, is great, if, if people respect me, then I'll be okay, if, if my work is fulfilling, if, if I have these comforts, if I have control, and we, we put our hope, and those aren't bad things, we put our hope, the weight and the beauty, we say, this is my life, this is what I need, and God's saying, no, that should be reserved for me alone. And here's the thing, we are worshipers by default. Worshiping will happen naturally, but we, we choose what we're going to direct that worship towards. And, and what we see as essential for our lives to be full, to be happy, to be peaceful, we arrange our lives around those things that we worship. So for us to experience this good life and, and for, the ex, for us to experience change that happens on the deep level, not just a surface change, we have to move beyond religious duty. We have to move to a heart that desires, that worships. So here's the difference. It would be like a guy who says that he's, he's got his wife and he, and he serves her well, but, but in his heart, he's actually in love with another woman and wishes he was married to her. How's that gonna go in that marriage? Right? It's, it's gonna tear him apart. It, it's, it's gonna put a, a weight on him. It's gonna destroy that marriage. Why? Because his heart isn't in it. The, the surface doesn't matter. Paul Tripp says it this way, we worshiped our way into sin. We need to worship our way out. So my question this morning is, where, where's your heart at this morning? What, what do you worship? Is it something horizontal that you're, you're clinging to, that you need to have, that without it your life is over, or is it... What Paul says here in 2.13, the blessed hope of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, when we start to look again at the gospel of Jesus Christ, our worship then becomes redirected. Well, when you start to see that I'm more sinful and broken than I'd ever want anybody to know, but in Christ, I'm more loved and accepted than I could ever, ever imagine. Our heart is drawn upward in worship. And we begin to, to preach that gospel to ourselves every day and draws our heart more and more. And when our hearts are drawn in that way, you won't need commands to be able to just follow after what God's called you to because your heart loves it. You don't need to command me to kiss my wife. You don't need to command me to eat a really good steak. You don't need to command me to hang out with my friends. I'm just gonna do those things because I love those things. Where's your heart? What, what do you love? The, the opposite's true as well. That it, if, if I hate something, commanding me to it, it's not gonna go well. I hate turnip, just hate it. Hate it. You can command me all you want. Eat the turnip. My mom tried my whole childhood. Still doesn't work. I hate it still. All right, you could wrap it in bacon, dip it in chocolate and peanut butter. I still will hate it, all right? 
this good life that we want to live out, it has to begin with our hearts directed in worship to, to grow in a love of who Christ is, to understand the gospel more deeply so that, that God continues to change our heart and we see the gospel more and more clearly and we're drawn to worship and love Jesus. The change begins there. We look up. We also, we also look back. This grows our heart for worship. When we look back, Again, verse two, where, where Paul reminds us that before the ages began, God was already at work to redeem you. What happens when we look back? When we look back, Romans 1.21 that says we gave the glory to, to created things instead of to God, it goes on and says, and we were, we never glorified God. It says we never gave thanks to God. When we forget to look behind and we see where we've come from and what Christ has done through the cross, we begin to have a heart that's thankless. We, we lose our gratefulness. I love what Francis Schaeffer said it this way, Christian theologian and, and philosopher Francis Schaeffer, he said, the beginning of our rebellion against God was and is the lack of a thankful heart. You think about Adam and Eve, their first problem. They, they look around this garden that God had created for them, God walking with them in the garden, this intimate relationship, and they looked around and went, meh. God's probably holding something out from us. I, I wish he would give us more. And we forget what God has done, and we grow unthankful, and we start to think that we don't need God any longer because we've forgotten the beauty of salvation. We've forgotten that we were lost but found, dead but made alive, blind but given sights. And, and listen, thankfulness begins as we see who we were, the hopelessness of our state. How helpless we are without God's grace. That, that even anything good that comes out of me, it's only by the grace of God. It's, it's only his spirit at work. And, and, and we get to see that it grows gratitude in our hearts. And we look back and we remember, I was a slave to sin. I was dead and lost. Jesus had to do it all for me and all I had to do was receive it as a gift. And so we, we look back at that, we remember that gift and we rest there and our hearts grow to celebrate that. We're transformed as we look back. By looking back, it kills pride. By looking back, it kills self-sufficiency. By, by looking back, it, it kills where, what our hearts would cling to in sin. By, by looking back, it, it kills bitterness and unforgiveness. When we remember where we came from. By looking back and we see how God rescued us, it, it begins to, to soften our hearts towards others. And, and those fights and those, those disagreements we had begin to not look so important. And our hearts grow with thankfulness to God with gratitude for the gospel. We look up, we look back. Here's, here's a third way. We also look forward. We need to look forward. Again, chapter two, verse 13, Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So, so what's he saying? He says, in the midst of the life we're living right now, we look and see what God is doing in us, the, what he's creating in us. We also look farther forward and we see what, what's coming for us, that, that God is preparing heaven for us. And it's, it's beginning now that Jesus said, I've already brought the kingdom here and I'm working it out in your heart right now, today. And what happens when we look towards that sure future, it changes us. 
In fact, in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, it says this, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And he says this, all who have their hope in him, this hope of a future hope, he says, purify themselves just as he is pure. When we look forward, we, we begin to see that God is creating something new in us. And we, we, we stop putting our hope in worshiping the here and now because we know what's coming. By, by looking forward, we see each other as eternal beings and it, it changes the way I relate to you and how you relate to me because we see each other as those who are eternal. By, by looking forward, we spend differently. We spend our money differently, our time differently, our talents differently. Why? Because we're looking to lay up eternal treasure in heaven and we're, we're looking forward to that day when Jesus will look at us and face to face, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. By looking forward, we see all these little choices we make are actually become hugely important. They, they have eternal consequences for me. They have eternal consequences for those around me. By looking forward, even in the midst of trial and struggle, my heart can be filled with hope and joy and peace. Why? Because I see them in an eternal perspective. And I love how Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he says, when I consider the weight of glory, the hope of what's coming, and I, I look at the trials I'm in right now, he says, they don't compare. Our hope is not here. Our, our hope does not reside in this life. Our hope is in the presence of the king. That's the anchor of my hope. And lastly, by looking up, by, by looking behind, by, by looking forward, what's it do? It, it changes even how we look at the world around us. And the fourth way we look differently is we, we look outward now. We look outward. And I love this because Paul writes this letter and even in the very first sentence, he, he shows how by, by looking up with a heart of worship, by looking back with a heart of thanksgiving, by looking forward with a heart filled with hope, he now looks outward with a heart of mission. The first sentence, he says, Paul, a servant or a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. What's an apostle? An apostle is just someone who's been sent. So, so if, if you're looking up with a worshipful heart, looking back with a thankful heart, looking forward with a hopeful heart, it's gonna change you to now look outward and say, man, I'm a servant of the king sent on a mission. Think about the implications that would have for Paul. Think about Paul's life as a follower of Christ, as a servant of God. What was Paul's life like? I mean, he was beaten a number of times. He was, he was whipped a number of times. He was shipwrecked a number of times. One of the shipwrecks ends him crawling up on the shore, making a fire to warm himself because he's nearly dead, and he's bit by a snake. Like, what is that? I'd be done. I'm like, okay, Lord, really? Snakes too, Right? He's put into prison. He's being shipped to Rome for his execution. That's why he's, he's on his way to Rome for execution. Winds blow, change the course of that ship, and he ends up in Crete. Now, if you, if you could meet Paul and you could say to Paul, you could say, hey, 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 do you feel like this is your mission? Like, do you feel like maybe, maybe prison and, and the island of Crete, do you feel like that's the mission you're on? I don't think Paul would have said, yes, I 
chose prison. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be shipwrecked. I wanted, no, but you know what I think Paul would say? He would say, for the glory of God, for the redemption of souls, I will go anywhere God sends me. Would I have chosen Crete? Probably not. Would I choose prison? That wouldn't have been my first choice. But God, in his redemptive plan, chose to have, chose to have the, the wind blow his boat on his way to another prison in Rome, and it blows his ship to the island of Crete, where he then is able to preach the gospel there. That's where God had him. Where does God have you? I mean, you, you live in Muskoka or Perry Sound or wherever. Maybe you're visiting, but where, where you live, why are you living where you live? Scripture would say, because God has you there. You're in the family you're in because God has you there. You're in the situation you even find yourself in right now because God has you there to say, how are you gonna live out the good life here and now? How are you gonna live out the gospel here today? And in your God's redemptive plan for transformation for where you find yourself today. That's the whole reason. Listen, it's the whole reason we do everything we do here at Harvest. Because we believe that God has us here as a church for a purpose, for a mission, that we've been sent by God. Why would we spend so much time and energy raising up small group leaders and coaches? Because God has called us to transform lives here. And by God's grace, lives are being transformed. Just at our annual general meeting on Friday, it was so encouraging to hear story after story being shared about here's how God has changed me in small group. And some stories were, this is where I was helped and saved and redeemed and, and worked on. And other stories were stories of here's how God used me in someone else's life. And it was just a sharing of, man, God's on mission. And we're on mission with him because he has us here. And I thank God for Pastor John who pours out his time and energy to raise up, train up, encourage those who are leading in small groups. In fact, just this year, we have 13 new small group leaders, six new coaches. It's why we do biblical soul care. Why, why do we do that? Because lives are being transformed in counseling, in hope groups, in small groups, as we raise up more people to walk with people to point them to this gospel. It's why we're excited that, that Matt's here to see more of this happen. It's, it's why we're fired up when we hear what's going on in our single ladies, our single moms ministry. That, that we've been called by God's word to care for widows and orphans. Where? Here, where he has us. And so, so I love talking to Val Forbes. She just talks about all the ways God's using that ministry. And she's actually stepping out of the ministry because another single mom has said, I'm gonna take it over. I'm gonna run with it now. And I've got some other ladies beside me who are gonna do it with me. And there are two ladies who are new Christians saying, we wanna be on this too, on this mission. And here's what I love. When you talk to them about how the ministry's going, they said it's no longer this separate ministry over here. We got kind of our single ladies ministry. Now it's being infused just into the life of the church, into small groups. And people saying, this is what we do. This is who we take care of. It's the mission we're on. Harvest Kids, it's grown by 30% this year. Our average Harvest Kids attendance now is 170 kids per Sunday. That used to be our peak attendance Right, that was our like long weekend in July. Oh no, we have 170 kids. This morning, just before I was coming up to preach, Sharon showed me the number. This morning, 190 kids, all right? So pray for your Harvest Kids servers because summer's gonna be crazy, right? Why, why do we do that? Why, why, why would you serve in Harvest Kids? Because God's called you to that ministry here to see and kids hear the gospel. 
our benevolence ministry, taking care of so many needs, global missions, that we see Laura Ann Michaelis serving with the nomad people in North Africa. Why would she do that? Why would she go? Because God's called her that. We want to support her in that. Her sister Jill and, and Jill's husband Moses serving in Uganda right now with, with pioneers working with refugees there. Mike and Jen Payton on their way back now from Papua New Guinea. I can't wait till they get back to, to hear them share the stories of how God used them in Papua New Guinea and, and what God's going to do with them in the future. It's Mexico City. Why plant that church? Why so many resources going to that? Because God's growing a church in Mexico City through Pastor Omar and more and more people are coming out every Sunday to hear the gospel, to have their lives transformed, to be walked alongside of why are we a part of the Great Commission Collective as a church? Why join with all these other churches? Because they're planting churches to the ends of the earth. God continues to grow our church continues to grow our church. I'm, I'm here, here's to encourage you. If you're tired this morning, you're like, man, I know God's called me to this, but man, it's, it's hard. It's tiring. Here's something that's so encouraging. Just this week, I'm hearing stories of people who are moving to Muskoka. They're like, I want to be a part of what God's doing at Harvest Muskoka. So if you're tired, more troops are coming. Keep going, all right? Why do we do all of this? We do all of this because the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed our lives. We do it because God has said, you're my child, but you're also my servant, and I'm sending you out on mission. Paul says in verse one, I do it all for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. I mean, we, we wanna be a gospel-soaked people, a part of a gospel-soaked church who reach out with this good news and have a presence in Muskoka and Perry Sound and the ends of the earth. We don't want to huddle up and become this, this weird Christian subculture where we kind of do our own thing here. No, no, no. We've been sent out with this good news of the gospel and we look up with hearts of worship. We look back with hearts of thankfulness and we, we look forward with this heart of hope. I mean, I can step out into this because my future is secure in Christ. And so we step out on mission together. Together, arm in arm. Arm in arm with others who feel weary and beat down. Others who, who need someone to come alongside and say, let, let me point you again to the hope we have in Christ. And what are we doing in this? Verse 10 says this of chapter two. Look at verse 10, the second half of it. He says that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What's he saying there? He's saying that, that in everything we may make attractive the gospel. So as people look in, they would see a group of people who are, who are making Jesus attractive, saying, man, your life is different. There's something about you. There's a hope you have that I've never seen before. There's a grace you show and a forgiveness you have and a love you have and a sacrifice you have. We need to understand that this grace and peace will not come from our cash. It won't come from our self. It won't come from religious activity. It will only come by the Father through the Son as the Spirit fills us and reminds us of the good news. That's it. It doesn't come from anywhere else. As the worship team comes up this morning, as we end off this morning, my question is this. Where have you put your hope? Have you placed your hope in Jesus Christ alone? Have you rested your life there? And listen, if you've never done that, this morning is the morning you can do that. 
There's hope today that you, you can look back on your sin and say, this is who I am. This is my sin. This is my brokenness. But you bring it before the Lord. You say, Lord, I'm sorry for sinning against you. Thank you for your sacrifice on my behalf. And this morning, you, you rest in the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life you couldn't live, gave his life for you, taking the wrath of God on himself so that you could have new life. And you look up to Jesus this morning. You, you celebrate that truth over you this morning. This gift you have, surrender today and you'll receive him today. If you're a Christ follower, where are you this morning? Is, is there evidence of the gospel in your life? Would, would you be able to say, man, I know Jesus. And people would say, yeah, I can tell. You walk different. You look different. You act different. If the grace of God has filled your heart, if you've been hit by the gospel, you will look different. You won't look the same. And listen, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm telling you, I'm not there. In fact, the more I look deeply into the gospel, the more I see how imperfect I am. The, the more I see sin that's even deeper than I thought it was. The more brokenness I see, the more I recognize my need for God's grace and I can celebrate that grace. I can grow in hunger for more of that grace. My hope is that we would grow in that, that we would grow in knowing that one day, one day we will see Jesus face to face and the sin that presses in on us will be no more. I mean, are you looking forward to that? Is the gospel changing how you live now? Listen, if you can sin and it doesn't bother you today, you haven't met grace. Today, I would pray this, that you would see the gospel, you would see the grace of Jesus Christ more deeply today. And you would pray for now, Lord, grow my heart to see the gospel more today. Would you stand with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. God, that we don't have to hide the fact that we're broken. because we know that when we put our hope in you, Lord Jesus, we trust in you that we're also completely forgiven. Father, I pray that we would, we would see the gospel clearly every day and that maybe even this morning you'd be renewing in our hearts a, a, a deeper love, a deeper understanding of the truth of the gospel today and we'd be being changed by, from one glory to the next, even right now this morning. God, you'd be growing our hearts. that when we look back, our hearts would be filled with a gratitude for what you've taken care of. And we would look forward to what you've promised us as you're, as you're transforming our lives. And all of that would cause our hearts to look up in worship for who you are, Lord Jesus. And that worshipful heart would send us out of here on mission. So God, I pray that this morning you begin with us seeing fresh the gospel. That maybe even right now, your spirit would be at work in hearts God, that we would see it in a way we've never seen it before. That we'd experience the gospel in those places of our hearts that are hurting. We'd experience the gospel in those places of our hearts that are filled with shame. 
We've experienced the gospel this morning, those places in our hearts that are rebellious and pushing against what you've called us to, that God, this morning, through the gospel, as your spirit works here this morning, that we would see the good life in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.